Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, an AXA podcast. I'm Gilles Moeck. I'm the chief economist of AXA Group. We've decided to offer to you a new way to inform on macroeconomic issues, focusing on one of the key contents of the latest uh, Macrocast newsletter. Today, your podcast will highlight ways to absorb the unavoidable rise in public debt created by the fight against the COVID epidemic beyond the massive QE response in the short run, which we've already seen. We'll also have a look on this week's highlights towards the end of this podcast. We hope you will enjoy this first Macrocast podcast. Now you see the debts, now you don't. Um, even if the response to the sanitary crisis has been somewhat hesitant in the US, the macro response there uh, is not. But before we get into this, let's listen to Jerome Powell, Fed's chairman interview last Thursday on CNBC. Small, medium, and large businesses uh, are not able to borrow through their normal channels to some extent. And so we step in and replace that. That's a very healthy thing. That's a positive thing. We're providing relief. We're providing stability to get us. We're trying to create a bridge from our very strong economy to another place of economic strength. And that's what our lending really does. It's very broad. It's across small, medium, and large businesses. We'll want, we're already helping state and local governments and just places where, 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 in, where credit is not being offered where it should be offered, where we're really just, it's really just a question of liquidity and credit availability. We can step in and make that happen. And that's a very positive thing and an appropriate thing to do in this highly unusual situation we're in. Between a fiscal package of 10% of GDP and a quantitative easing, which is now explicitly unlimited, with also a lot of holes being plugged in the Fed's arsenal, for instance, extending um, eligible assets to commercial paper and corporate bonds, there is probably enough to deal with the second-run effects of the crisis via household income and corporate defaults. The same is true now of the ECB, where QE is implicitly unlimited during the pandemic helping the emergency fiscal response. But as much as we don't have much doubt as to the capacity of the central banks to deal with the immediate borrowing requirement of 2020, the ECB, for instance, has already put on the table enough to absorb a deficit of 7.5% of GDP, we think we also need to start thinking about uh, the medium-term horizon. Indeed, public debt will probably increase by more, and possibly much more, than 10% of GDP. This will leave deep scars. The ECB's Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, the PEPP, could be prolonged, but for now, it is valid until the end of this year only. We suspect a lot of economists are currently brushing up their history books and looking for clues as to how to mitigate the financial costs of the current crisis. Your humble servant certainly is. Our conclusion so far, though, is that there is no old economic catastrophes which provide perfect guidance in our current predicament, even if discussing them helps shedding light on some of the mechanisms which will be at play this time. Most European countries managed to bring the public debt they inherited from the Second World War to very manageable levels in just a few years, without defaulting nor restructuring. But there was a key difference with the current situation. A large share of production capacity had been destroyed. This meant two things. First, that inflation would be naturally high, because it would take time for supply to catch up with irrepressible demand, Second, that GDP growth could be massive because the productivity of capital was extremely high. Public debt could thus be kept in check as nominal GDP growth was particularly high. Moreover, there was another key ingredient which has nothing to do with the usual working of growth theory, financial repression. Indeed, after World War II, 
Cross-border capital controls were tight, and governments deployed their creativity to channel existing national private saving towards funding their own borrowing requirements. This often meant that access to capital was an issue for the private sector. The loop was often closed by essentially turning the state, or at least the banking sector under strict government control, into the provider of funds to private businesses. The differences with today are obvious. The pandemic does not destroy capacity. It merely brings capacity utilization down, sometimes to zero for the worsted sectors. This suggests that we cannot count on a mechanical rebound in nominal GDP growth, which would magically erode the debt accumulated at the peak of the crisis. Financial repression is not going to be a possibility either, in our view. Preventing cross-border capital controls is at the very heart of the European single market. It would take a level of policy coordination far exceeding the current levels seen in the EU to make this work. True, governments are currently taking over funding of businesses, directly so in the US, but this is an emergency solution. Ultimately, in the 1950s, growth in nominal GDP meant that the competition between private and public funding needs could be managed. In a low-inflation, low-growth environment, a command economy would face constant competing demands. Can we deal with accumulated debt the hard way, uh, meaning simply by raising tax and or curbing expenditure once the epidemic crisis is over? We suspect this will be the natural slope in some EU member states, but finding the right dosage is going to be difficult on this. Indeed, a quick fiscal rollback could be very detrimental to the recovery, and we believe that governments have learned from the mistaken coordinated fiscal contraction of 2010, which, coming too soon after the Great Recession, contributed to the weak economic performance of the last decade. What then? Well, governments could simply decide to take it slow on the fiscal stance for several years and accept to pay the price in terms of additional risk premium on the bonds. But this would mean a rise in funding costs for everyone, including the private sector. For countries whose debt trajectory was already questionable before the pandemic, this is not a workable plan. We can see two main avenues then. One involves mainly the central bank, the other mainly the governments. But both options will entail difficult political decisions. The first way would have the central bank in practice sterilizing the share of the public debt it will have bought under the pandemic emergency by pledging to reinvest it continuously for 30 or 50 years. This option was laid out by the European economists of Bank of America Merrill Lynch last Thursday. This would create a lasting gap between the nominal debt ratio of governments, total debt issued as a percentage of GDP, and the quantum of debt relevant for investors assessing the country's debt sustainability. To work, though, this would need to be explicit ex ante, while we see no real difficulty for the Fed or the Bank of England to do something like this. This could prove much more complicated for the European Central Bank, as this would be sailing very close to the wind in terms of blurring the lines between fiscal and monetary policy. Still, we know that the ECB has so far not communicated on the reinvestment aspects of the pandemic emergency purchase program. We think there could be a sub-option via loans to the private sector. In the straightforward version of the circuit, the government brings cash to the private sector so that it can survive the crisis, and ultimately, the government gets its cash from the central bank. It should be possible to bypass governments. We were intrigued by the Fed's new Main Street Lending Facility, which was unveiled last week. A lot of the details still need to be hammered out, but in our understanding, the Fed will provide a backstop to the bank's lending to small firms. According to MarketWatch, on March the 27th, 
In this facility, banks would have the possibility to offload the performing loans to the Fed at par or sell the non-performing loans at a price to be determined to the Fed. The Fed's facility is explicitly backed by government guarantee to protect them against losses. But pushing the logic of this approach to the limit, another solution would be to simply accept voluntary defaults by firms, organized and sanctioned by the government, potentially with some conditions to limit free riding, on these emergency loans, which would be borne by the central bank. This means that cash would have been created via credit origination without any corresponding claim left on the central bank's balance sheet. This is the very definition of helicopter money, but here, via loans to small and medium enterprises, instead of the usual approach, the central bank writing checks to households. The solution is a tall order, of course, because it means we would have to accept that central banks could operate in negative equity. But this may be a way, in Europe, to circumvent the treaty's provisions against monetary funding of governments to provide lasting support to the private sector. This is unlikely to go down well in the most disciplinarian countries of the EU area. But these countries need to balance this, the threat to monetary orthodoxy, with the other avenue, which is going through debt mutualization. Indeed, if it is impossible to design a permanent solution via monetary policy, while there is still a consensus on the need to avoid any existential tensions in the EU area stemming from the specific vulnerability of some member states, then the only route left is debt mutualization. And this is the approach supported by nine, nine member states in a letter to the President of the Council, including France, Italy, and Spain. We expressed in Macrocast three weeks ago our support for using the European Stability Mechanism, and more precisely the precautionary credit lines, because we thought at the time it would be a way to incentivize the ECB to ignore its limits and engage into a more decisive form of QE. But since the ECB ECB has now explicitly suspended those limits for the duration of the emergency, we think going through the ESM in its present form has become useless and could end up being a net negative. The key feature of the ESM loans is that they stay on the requesting country's balance sheet. While it represents a benefit in terms of funding cost, because those loans are priced below the interest rate a fragile government would have to pay in the market, it does not necessarily change investors' perception of debt sustainability. It is also particularly toxic in the southern countries, since several northern states insist for tough conditions on such loans. This means that the optimal solution to what is, ultimately, a symmetric shock affecting all member states, for no fault of them, is proper mutualization. In other words, joint debt issuance whose proceeds can be transferred to the countries in need without appearing in their balance sheet. The cost for national public finances would lie only in the capital guarantee granted to the joint issuance structure. Given the negative noises around the EU summit last week, we're not holding our breath. But in our view, this is the stark choice facing Europe, either finding an unorthodox monetary policy solution or dealing once and for all with the euro area's birth defect, in other words, the absence of a permanent, sizable federal fiscal capacity. The Great Recession of 2008-2009 started in the US, but the US exited faster and in a better shape than Europe. This time, Europe was quicker in taking the measure of the crisis, but it may be hampered by its political limits in the design of its response. We suspect the US won't have those preventions. And now to end this podcast, let's talk about what we will focus on this week. We would actually focus on two things. 
one on Tuesday, we'll get uh, the PMI release for China, uh, which is expected to rebound to above 50 as work resumption leads to sequential improvement in growth momentum. That would be probably one of the very few positive news we'll get uh, from anywhere in the world. Uh, this. Um, also, and that's very connected to the conversation we've just had, uh, we will look at any details coming from the Fed on the actual structuring of uh, its new uh, policy arsenal, in particular, this uh, Main Street facility, which we find so intriguing. Well, thank you very much for listening to this first uh, microcast podcast. Obviously, the current conditions are ideal. Recorded that from home. And we hope that uh, in the next few weeks, uh, those conditions will improve. To take a deeper look, I invite you to read the Macrocast 39 newsletter. And see you next Monday on IM Talks 1 and all your podcast applications. Have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.